As you pull out your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we know that uh, today is the day that our country wants to recognize and honor mothers. And Lord, we know that that's a distinguished and uh, ordained calling from you every day. And so we want to know what your word has for us because your word speaks to every single one of us in every single situation, Father God. So we ask that as we go to your word that you would give us understanding and courage to live out your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're continuing our series in CrossFitness. And today we come to the pathway of fitness we come to chapter 22, there's only three chapters left in Luke, and those three chapters are the three biggest points in Jesus' life, his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. Tonight, we're going to focus, tonight, this morning, this morning, yeah, see, it's a.m., this morning, we're going to focus in on the time right before Jesus is betrayed, right before he's arrested. When thinking about cross-fitness, there is a pathway that's clear, defined, and it leads to fitness. We like to say it's really hard to get there, but it's really not. We've covered many aspects of it, um, but the essential pathway breaks down into just a few steps. If you deviate from these steps, you sacrifice fitness. If you follow them, you're on the pathway to cross fitness. The steps are, you have to have a proper diet. You have to have a challenging workout. And you have to have sufficient rest. With those three things, you can be on your pathway to physical fitness. This morning as we look at one of the final chapters of the Gospel of Luke... As I said, it's centered around the betrayal, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Luke has recorded for us the events that take place at the Last Supper of Jesus. It's here that I see revealed in these events and the teachings of Jesus the desire for him to have intimacy with his disciples. You see, this intimacy with Jesus, that is what it means to be crossfit. To be fit for the cross, we have that intimate relationship with Christ where we are reflections of him as the Father desired. And there's some things that will derail us off the pathway to intimacy and cross-fitness. So as we look at the passage before us, let's identify these steps on the pathway to fitness so that we can keep on the pathway and not get detracted. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him, Jesus, to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police that he could hand them, him over to them. They were glad. They agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd would not be present. 
then the day of unleavened bread came and when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed and Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jug, a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and they found it just as he told them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will, not, will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they, the disciples, began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is, not like, it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials, and I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a lot of verses, but I promise you we're going to get through it. There's three things that I believe that we see here that keep you on the pathway of that intimacy with Christ, that, that cross-fitness. Number one is trust. To have the intimacy with Christ, you have to have trust. Trust has to be there. Trust is everything, and it's also what leads us in our faith. Faith and trust are interchangeable words. As we look at the first couple of verses again, it says that the festival of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. It was then that Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him silver. And he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
And so Jesus sends Peter and John, and he says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And they said, where do you want us to prepare it? Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Then you tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? So he'll show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, Luke begins this passage letting us know the time frame of the week. We know that Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the triumphant entry. We knew it was his last week. We know that they're there to celebrate Passover. But now he's telling us the days that this is occurring on, okay? There's the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happens the day before they sacrifice the lamb. And so they're going in and they're they're, uh, having to make preparations to celebrate Passover, Luke, writing the Gentiles, ties the two together, okay? The Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, the same thing. Passover is a remembrance of the final plague sent upon Egypt. It was the death of the firstborn sons. This was a universal plague, and it would affect anyone who did not follow the command of God to provide the remedy for them and for their household. Israel was instructed they had to sacrifice a lamb to be cooked and eaten within the house. But not only that, the lamb was to be a pet for them for that whole week. Then they would slaughter the lamb and collect the blood. The blood was to be put on the lintel and the doorposts in a sort of cross pattern. Covering of this blood would cause the angel sent to pass through the land and kill the firstborn sons to pass over that house. And death would pass over those who were covered by the blood. You see in Exodus Chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, it says, When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. The feast of Passover was established to be observed throughout the generations of Israel as a reminder to the Lord who delivered them from Pharaoh and caused death to pass over them. The other interesting thing about Passover is the Lord told them, Passover marks the beginning of your calendar. So Passover time is like New Year's for Israel. In chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, this day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day I brought your military divisions out of the land of Egypt, and you must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. Now, part of Passover is the requirement leaven or yeast had to be removed from your house. Nothing with leaven could be eaten. Nothing with leaven should remain in your house. Now, leaven and yeast have been used as a symbol for influence, for spread, and most often associated with sin. Jesus used it as a parable to describe the influence and growth of the kingdom, but here, for the Passover, it represents sin. 
So with the leaven being a symbolic of sin and the Passover set to be celebrated, the Jews would have to clean out the leaven from their home, and that would represent cleaning out the leaven in their hearts. As they clean out their home, it's like they're cleaning out their hearts. They're supposed to be removing sin from their hearts. But when we come here and we see that they're on the festival of unleavened bread, what do we see the chief scribes? the Pharisees, the religious leaders doing. They're plotting sin in their hearts. They're not removing it. They're plotting for it. They're looking for a way to put Jesus to death. And the only reason they haven't done it yet is because they're afraid of the people, which is funny. Not in like a ha-ha sort of way, but like in an ironic sort of way. They are not afraid to kill the Son of God. They're just afraid of the political ramifications that they do. Judas, who also should have been clearing out leaven and preparing to celebrate the Passover, knowing the representation of sin, was also planning sin in his heart. And Judas would be the key to them being able to arrest Jesus away from the crowds. We read here that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. When I was a kid, I'll just, side note, I used to think it was Judas the scariest. But by the mere fact that Satan entered into Judas, in no way does this imply that Judas was an unwilling participant. What it shows us is that he instead has opened himself to the influence and following of Satan due to a lack of trust in Jesus. Judas was numbered among the twelve. He was a counted disciple with Jesus, but he lost trust that Jesus was the Savior that he was looking for. The only way I know this is because we see that Judas went and plotted and planned to betray Jesus. The only way you could do that is if you lose trust in who you think is going to save you. So he either stopped trusting Jesus altogether, or his heart was divided and he trusted money more. I believe the Lord wants us to know that to stay on the pathway to fitness, our trust has to be in Jesus completely and totally. Nothing can vie for that trust, that faith in Jesus. There can be no close second place. Everything should be like far and separate. Now the deal that Judas made earned him a sum of money. It's not recorded here in Luke, but the other gospels tell us it was 30 pieces of silver. Interesting is that's the same price to redeem a female servant. The price of Jesus' life, 30 pieces of silver, is the same to redeem a female servant from bondage. Perhaps a bride? Symbolic of him redeeming a bride? Because remember, Jesus didn't come to redeem himself. And the price to redeem a male servant from bondage was 50 pieces of silver. As one of the 12, Judas was there for a lot of the big stuff with Jesus, a lot of the miracles. But he was consumed by a lack of trust in Jesus and an inflated trust in money. And so he departed from the pathway to fitness. You see, he had expectations for what Jesus should be. His faith wasn't in Jesus. His faith was in what Jesus represented. 
and he had expectations. Now, Jesus, in preparation for the dinner for the Passover, he set it up in a way that only he, Peter, John, and the owner of the house would know where he was celebrating Passover. Because what happened at Passover and the time that he had with the disciples had to happen. Jesus was aware of his betrayal. He knew it when he picked Judas as a disciple. He said, did I not choose you 12 and one of you is the devil? He said it over and over and over again before, and he will again say it again this evening in this passage. I know we're in the morning now. <laughs> and so he instructed Peter and John. He says, they said, where do you want us to prepare Passover? And he could have said, over at this house right here, you'll find it this way. But he gave it in such a different way, I believe, to maintain the secrecy so that he couldn't be betrayed before it was time. It was an odd arrangement. He tells them, look for the man carrying water. That would be peculiar because in that day, men didn't carry the water. The women did. And I'm not going to argue whether it was right or wrong. That was just customary of the time. So it would be unusual to see the man doing it. So they knew that that would be the guy. Then they were supposed to follow him home. I hope that guy knew who they were. Or it could have been a longer trip home, you know, when you're taking extra turns, make sure, are they following me? <laughs> so upon entrance, they announced that Jesus, the teacher, wants to know where the guest room is to eat Passover with his disciples. Jesus knew in advance that he wasn't going to get the guest room. They gave him the upper room. The upper room in, the, in those times is, it, it's an interesting thing in the way that they built their houses back then. It's called the upper room because it was a uh, room that was built on top of where they would store everything. You see, in those times, you couldn't just make a quick run to Walmart whenever you ran out of stuff. And so you would, as you uh, harvested and as you gathered, you would store it. And it had to be stored in a cool place. And so it would be in this, you, you know how it is when you have a two-story house, the bottom floor is always cooler than the top floor. That's because you have that extra separation from the heat and the elements. And so the upper room would be on top of that. That's usually the room for the family. And Jesus knew that that would be the room that would be given. And he says, that's where you're going to make preparations. And so we read, they went and they found it just as Jesus said. And I see the big picture thing here is when you choose to trust Jesus, you will always find everything to be exactly as he says it is. And you'll remain on the pathway to fitness. Our problem is, is when we hear Jesus say something, we don't follow it exactly. Our mind goes, this is what he said, and this is what he intended. And so when the picture of what we have doesn't meet up with reality of what he said, we go, oh no, I can't trust Jesus. He got it wrong. The disciples trusted and listened to Jesus and what he told them, and they found it just like it was with no unmet expectations. When we get ahead, when we expect something else, trusting other than or more than Jesus, we lose that pathway to fitness. And that's what happened with Judas. Judas had it in his mind, Jesus is Messiah and what that meant. He didn't understand the suffering servant came first. And so when Jesus wasn't all that he wanted him to be, he decided Jesus wasn't enough. And he said, I don't mind betraying him. So the first step is trust. Second step is understanding. 
We all struggle with understanding, especially when it comes to understanding God's word, understanding his goal and his calling for our life and understanding all this. But I, I think we can see here that Jesus desires for us to have an understanding. He, he, he's not meaning to keep anything secret from us or anything cryptic with us. He desires for us to have understanding. In verse 14, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks. He broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then he says, But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it's been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. The hour came, they were going to celebrate Passover. Passover had to be eaten together. It was normally eaten as a family. To Jesus, his disciples are his family. In fact, he told them in, in John's uh, version of this, he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. So Jesus tells him, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you. And that sentence construction means he had ardent, passionate longing with excitement and anxiety. We need to see that the desire of Jesus to have intimacy and communion with us at his table. Another way I can put it is Christmas for Jesus is communion with us. You know how it is on Christmas where you can't sleep at night. You're like so excited because you're just anticipation. That's communion with us for Jesus. We need to be understanding that the close, intimate fellowship that Jesus desires with us, and it should drive us to pursue and meet him. And that keeps us on the pathway to fitness. When we understand how des desperate Jesus wants to have that intimate relationship, that closeness with us, it should drive us to say, Jesus, how can I get closer to you? How can I come to you? The God of the universe wants to be close to you. That should drive our heart to say, oh my gosh, Amen. and seek it out. And then he says, he's not even going to eat again for the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, the Passover was a shadow of things to come. The Passover was always foretelling of Jesus and the sacrifice he was going to make. When he dies on the cross for the sins of the world as God's perfect and spotless lamb... He fulfills it for the kingdom of God. And so he takes a cup, and after giving thanks, he takes it and shares it among them. And he says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You see, right now, Jesus is awaiting the appointed time to sup with his bride again at the marriage feast of the Lamb when the church is taken home and joined together with Jesus forever and eternity. The next meal is going to be at the consummation of the kingdom which is at his coming. 
So then Jesus does what we know as the Lord's Supper. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, gives it to them. And he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Followed by taking of the cup after supper, explaining this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Jesus was giving them an understanding of what would take place in the next 24 hours. A new covenant is being set up. One that has to be interpreted through the Passover. And what Jesus would then endure that's coming up. You see, the Passover lamb was to be taken and killed, and the body has to be broken in order for the blood to pour out. They had to break Jesus' body in order for the blood to come out, and it's the blood that Jesus sacrificed on the cross that covers our sins. Jesus is the true Lamb of God, and it's His blood that causes death to pass over those who are covered by it. In John one twenty nine. Oh, I lost my focus on the, on the remote. In John 1.29, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what Jesus alluded to later on in John 11. In John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You see, death will pass over whoever is covered by the blood of Jesus. And it's so important that we understand this because without understanding the new covenant being made, one cannot enter into it. and be on the pathway to fitness. It doesn't matter how close to Jesus you are if you don't understand that his blood has to cover you. You're not there. Jesus immediately says, but look, the hand of one betraying me is at the table with me. And Jesus knew it was Judas. And as I said before, Jesus knew before he chose Judas. And in John's gospel, we read that Jesus even knelt down and washed the feet of Judas. Judas is an example of how close to Jesus you can get without understanding and miss out on salvation. Judas was there for this meal with Jesus. He had fellowship with all the apostles and Jesus, but according to the other gospels, Judas was not there during the communion supper. He missed the communion. He didn't take part in the body and blood of Jesus. You see, to take part in the body and blood of Christ is to recognize that we are in sin, that we have a sin nature, that we cannot escape or pay for our own sins. The only victory over sin is in the life that Jesus gave for us, and one must understand the sacrifice made and the salvation offered to be on the pathway to fitness. If you don't understand that Jesus is the one who sacrificed and how you get salvation by coming to him, and you can offer nothing. All you can do is receive what was already done for you. And again, I have to say it, Judas may have been used to fulfill what was determined of Jesus. It says it was determined he would die. Judas is not absolved of the guilt for his part in it. In fact, Jesus says, though it's determined, woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. 
we need to understand the fact that God overrules the evil that bad people do as he brings his purposes to pass does not make them any less evil, according to Leon Morris, a uh, noted Bible scholar. Evil acts are still evil, but our God is so good, he can take and make beauty from ashes. So we need to have understanding also. And, and finally, we need to have humility. In verse 23, after Jesus just said, the one who's going to betray me is at the table, verse 23 happens. It's Mother's Day. Now we're going to celebrate something that moms go through all the time. Children are going to fight. They're going to argue. They're going to... <laughs> verse 23, it says, so they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who is going to do it. And then from that argument arises another argument, and they... The, the dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but those who have authority over them have called themselves benefactors. He says, it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest and whoever leads like the one serving for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving. Isn't it the one at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we come to the end of the passage before us and two arguments break out. I've never seen this happen with children where one argument leads to another argument. And then you're just trying to untangle the whole argument. But the first argument came from a place where there's a lack of humility. In fact, I believe it is one argument that specifically led to the other one, in that the disciples were first arguing over which disciple would it be that would betray Jesus. Now, this isn't the normal argument. It's not like, well, I think it's going to be you. And they're like, well, I think it's going to be you. Instead, they were all actually looking inside and saying, could it be me? Could I do something that may betray Jesus? And then they start going, well, I don't think you could ever betray Jesus. I mean, look at what you've done before. Look, look, look at all those great things you did. So it couldn't be you. Oh, yeah, and it couldn't be me because I did great things also. And then it goes into, well, who's the greatest? Look at what I've done and look at what I've done. But check this out. Judas did such a good job, no one suspected that it could be him. We read from other gospel accounts that Judas, even in the middle of this dinner, gets up and leaves. And you know what they say? They don't say, well, there goes Judas to betray Jesus. They said, look at Judas. He's going to go buy more bread. Or perhaps he's going to go give money to the poor. He fooled them. It's truly humbling to consider that they all argued because they realized and perhaps learned in that moment that because of sin, it could have been any one of them that betrayed Judas, or that betrayed Jesus. And truth is, every single one of us here this morning is capable of betraying Jesus because of the sin nature that we have.
But then they arise, and as they're trying to figure out who's the worst sinner of them all, who could possibly do it, then they start going, wait a minute, but I've done all these great things, so I'm so great, and I'll actually be next to Jesus while you're betraying him. And so now they're like, who's the greatest? And so Jesus, he tells them, look, the Gentiles, he can replace that word, and the heathen, the uncivilized, the non-believers, they lord it over others. They who have authority want to call themselves benefactors, people who, are, who give us benefits. Because of their greatness, we all benefit from it. That's what a benefactor is. They were anything but beneficial. Jesus tells them flat out, it is not to be so with you. He says, on the contrary, we are not to live like the world. We are not to be like the unbelievers. We are not to do the same things. As great as it is in, in thinking that we should all be served because we've arrived at the point and because we follow Jesus, we deserve to be served. Jesus says, no, because you follow me, you should serve. The pathway to fitness always requires humility. You cannot be on the pathway to cross fitness without humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself either. It's not going, oh man, I'm so terrible. I'm just going to mess it up anyway. Humility has nothing to do with you. You shouldn't be thinking of yourself at all. The proper balance in life brings joy. Jesus says, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. He says, who is greater, the one serving or the one at the table? He goes, the one at the table, right? Like he's sitting down, he's being served, it's great. We see people with butlers and we're like, wow, they must be important. And Jesus says, but I am serving you. And let's make no argument. Jesus is the greatest of all, right? But he's servant of all. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That should give us perspective and attitude that we all need to have to be on the pathway to fitness and intimacy with him. You see, the true aspect of humility and the way that we live our lives gives us joy when we live for Jesus, when we live for others, and we put ourselves last. We have true joy. Now, I'm not saying that this means that we take care of everybody else and all of their needs, and when there's no more needs in the world, then we get to look at ourselves but it just gives us an idea of the perspective. Don't be looking, how do I make my life better? How do I get my life better? It's kind of like, how can I be a blessing to others? How can I be obedient to Jesus? You see how you take yourself out of that picture? Living as a servant is truly the best way to live because we're no longer concerned for our own honor and our own credit. We won't walk around with hurt feelings and disappointed expectations because things aren't going the way we feel that they should. We're only concerned with others and with serving. See, it comes back to trust. Do we trust Jesus when he says that he came to give us life and give it more abundantly and then in the same breath calls us to serve one another, to love one another, to live in such a way in which we lay down our lives for each other? And we always misconstrue this. 
and we get disappointed in this. Jesus never said that if you serve in a lowly place, you will be given a great place. Jesus says serving in the low place is the great place. That is where we should be. You see, a test of your humility and how much of a servant you are is your reaction when you're actually treated like one. When someone treats you like a servant, do you get all indignant and go, hey, do you know who I am? Or do you say, hey, they see me properly. I'm here to serve. But also make no mistake, Jesus doesn't say that serving goes unrewarded. God's greatest servants receive the greatest rewards because they serve not for the reward, but to glorify God. Those who have a desire for humility, they're going to take their lead from Jesus, not from the world. As we come to a close, we're going to partake of communion. I thought it would be a great thing to partake of communion as Jesus is teaching about communion. And uh, Jesus says, You are those who continued with me in my trials, and I bestow on you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one on me. Now you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, in, in, in view of all this, Jesus rests back and he says, you're the guys. You're going to go forth. You're going to learn this life of service and sacrifice. You're going to learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You see, that, that in Jesus' last moments, this is what he's passing on to his disciples. He's not saying, you've got to get it right right now because I'm going to be gone and you're just, if you mess up, that's it. What he's telling them is be prepared for it. Continue to practice it. Continue to live it out. You're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. You're going to come back from those. Okay? You're going to go forth. You're going to learn from it. You're going to draw on everything that you've learned from me. And he says, I bestow on you a kingdom. Jesus left his hand, his ministry in the hands of 11 flawed men who all at the cross would deny him. Go back to their old life, even after he had risen and given them their commission. He trusted his kingdom to men who had no formal training. They were tax collectors. They were zealots. They were fishermen. They were prideful. They were doubtful. They were afraid. They simply continued with him in his trials. I want to say something. Especially to you moms. We have an enemy likes to tell us everywhere we've messed up. He'll tell you all the things that you could have done, all the things you should have done, all the ways where it's your fault that your kids grow up like this. It's a lie. Continue in him, no matter the trials you go through. Raise your kids in him. You can be a good mom. It doesn't depend on your mistakes. It depends on who you trust. All the disciples, they held the line. They were flawed. They had mistakes. Jesus knew every last one of them. Chose them. Commissioned them. He sent them. Despite what the world wants to tell you, Jesus did not pick you mothers because you were perfect. 
He picked you because you were the perfect mother for your child. And God makes a promise. Not only to never leave you, never forsake you, but that he who begun a good work in you will see it through. In Philippians chapter 1, 6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Those of you that are here this morning, as James said, we all have mothers. We all have different mothers. We may have good mothers. We may think we have bad mothers. We may think we may never have known our mothers. Don't allow situations in life to choose whether you trust Jesus or not. We need to trust Jesus for all the different situations that we come across in life. He's the one that's promised to see us through it and to bring us through it. He's the one that laid his life down on the cross. He's the one that came and brought the new covenant. That's what he wanted us to understand. Don't be discouraged when you stumble. Continue to trust Jesus. Understand that our God is a God of mercy and grace. Understand that his perfection covers our flaws. We are imperfect messengers sent to carry a perfect message. He honors the humility and the submission, not the performance. I'm going to ask the guys to come up and help me hand out the communion. And uh, we'll partake of communion together, and then we have one last uh, song that we're going to go over. Now, communion is a meal that is shared at the Lord's table, and it's for the Lord's family. As we note in the other Gospels, Judas did not partake of it because he was not a part of the Lord's family. If you're here this morning, there's two options that you have set before you. Skip communion. Don't have that intimacy with Christ. Admitting to yourself that you know that you are not covered for salvation. Or the better option, you can come right now and say, I trust you, Christ, that you died on the cross, that, you ent- that there is a new covenant that I need to enter, and it's by your broken body and the blood that you spilt on the cross that my sins are forgiven. And upon that confession, Jesus has declared that you shall be saved. For all who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. Then we can partake of the Lord's Supper together at the table. This is the way that we get to commune with him until the time where we get to see him.
We'll see if the verses pop up, but I was going to use the same verses out of Luke where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper so that we would have understanding about what this new covenant is all about. You see, in Luke chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus says, For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This covenant is the covenant in which the kingdom of God is coming. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. And then in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you in remembrance of the Passover in which the blood of the Lamb causes death to pass over whoever it covers. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. Paul later tells us that every time we partake of this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look forward to that great day in which he's coming. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and Father, I just want to lift up all the families here. Lord, I pray that in, in, in whatever way, in, in whatever relationship they have with their, their mothers and however the mothers feel this morning, Father, I just pray that your love, your comfort would surround them in that. Lord, for those who have mothers to honor, I pray that you would give them the, the words to honor. For those that had mothers that maybe they, they, they say they don't want to honor. Lord, I just pray that you would be enough to cover their comfort, that they would trust in you and that they would understand even earthly mothers are imperfect, but you, God, you're perfect. We just ask that you would be glorified this morning. Help us to live out on that pathway to fitness for you. In Jesus' name, amen.